The following talk was given at the Insight Meditation Center in Redwood City, California. Please visit our website at audiodharma.org. Good morning. It's good to see you all. (laughs) As I was sitting there, I was thinking um, how easy it would be to just continue sitting there instead of giving my talk. (laughs) So so bear with me. (laughs) We're in this together. This morning... What I want to talk about is uh, a combination of things having to do with the path that we are walking and um, inclusivity of all of the things that we are and are not. So, to begin with, I'm going to read a poem. I'm going to use a particular poem as a, a kind of structure for how we're going to talk about this. And this month's issue of Buddha Dharma magazine is an issue devoted to women in Buddhism. So I had this idea I was going to be inspired by something, but and I was. It just wasn't what I expected. So I'm going to start with this poem. There's one of the articles in here um, is by Meg Gowler, who some of you may know. She's been associated with IMC. And she's put together, she's chosen some poems from a collection called the Terragata, which is the uh, uh, writings attributed to early female disciples of the Buddha. So this is from that selection, and I have further selected this particular poem. So... This poem is um, Rohini's The Wandering Star. Wandering Star. You don't become the cloth just because you put on robes. You don't turn into empty space just because you carry a bowl. The sun doesn't bow down. Trees don't throw flowers at your feet. Birds don't start answering when you call. The path will hold even the biggest mistakes. The path will make room for even your deepest regrets. But you don't become the cloth of the robe overnight. It can begin very quietly, something you barely even notice, like the touch of water on your skin, like a knife in a drawer, like the next five minutes, unless they're your last. The path isn't a line on a map. It's a great shining world. Enter wherever you like. You might get thrown back once or twice, but if you push through the outer layers, oh, my sisters, then you will know the true welcome that is the very essence of the path. You don't become the cloth just because you put on robes. You don't turn into empty space just because you carry a bowl. The sun doesn't bow down. Trees don't throw flowers at your feet. Birds don't start answering when you call. The path will hold even the biggest mistakes. The path will make room for even your deepest regrets. 
but you don't become the cloth of the robe overnight. It can begin very quietly, something you barely even notice, like the touch of water on your skin, like a knife in a drawer, like the next five minutes, unless they're your last. The path isn't a line on a map. It's a great shining world. Enter wherever you like. You might get thrown back once or twice, but if you push through the outer layers, oh, my sisters, then you will know the true welcome that is the very essence of the path. So I love this poem. I may read it every day for the rest of my life. I love this poem. So the poem emphasizes the the fact that it's easy to get lost in the idea of what is a spiritual path. And it becomes just more way that we have to become something other than ourselves. But in truth, you can enter wherever you like. And the other piece of literature I want to talk about is a book by Zenzu Earthland Manuel. A group of us studied this book and considered this book as part of uh, the interest of diversity and inclusivity and seeing what is us and what is all of us. The name of her book is called The Way of Tenderness, Awaking Through Race, Sexuality, and Gender. One of the... um, one of the, if, if you get a chance to read this book, I highly recommend it. It is not a book on diversity. <laughs> it is really about the path. It is about how we travel in our spiritual path. How do we, what is our practice? And how that practice can only happen through this body in this space. The body that you are the color of your skin, your sexuality, your gender inclinations. This is how. This is the mechanism of the path. This is it. We spend a lot of time in Buddhism talking about non-self and not clinging to self, which sort of doesn't pay a lot of attention to mindfulness is experiencing the world through our senses, through the mind habits that we have, through consciousness. This this is how we reach freedom, through just as we are. So, her book doesn't teach about uh, uh, social justice or how to be in a certain way. It's, it's actually been criticized for not giving a formula for this is what you should do. This is how you do it. These are the things you have to be sure you do. She said, why would I do that? (laughs) It's about how you are and about seeing yourself and seeing those around you and recognizing that the path runs right through our interrelationships. Right through our interrelationships. It's about seeing clearly how things are and how the interactions with how things are create our living world. 
So it's about being alive in this world. She espouses the disciplined, uncomfortable work of being who we are and practicing with that. It's not an intellectual exercise. It is a very physical, experiential way of being alive in the world. So, you don't become the cloth just because you put on the robes. When we talk about the path, when we talk about a spiritual path, we often talk about the eightfold path, those ways of being in the world that we think will give rise to the end of suffering, all of which I ascribe to, by the way. However, it does tend to create the idea that there's a formula, that if we just follow the path, and so we practice by doing the things, and maybe miss some of the quality of the Eightfold Path as how we are in the world, not so much what we do in the world. So that's what I want to emphasize today, that, that the path is not about becoming a better person, although we all hope for that. It isn't about changing you into some idealized form or me into some idealized form as a person that always wants to be more perfect. Actually, I've given that up. I know that I'm never going to be perfect, and I'm now happy about that (laughs) because that is where I practice, around all my imperfections. That is how I come to see how I am caught Oh, oh, there it is, that thing again. The path will make room for your deepest regrets. We all have things in our lives we wish hadn't happened. We wish we had been better. We wish something else had had been true. And the path says, yes, that's who you are. That's how you have arrived here. That thing you regret is back there. And here is the person that now is practicing. This person. With that experience. With these experiences. But you don't become the cloth of the robe overnight. You know, one of the things about the path is that we tend to think, we, t- we tend to measure ourselves, right? Okay, I'm doing, I'm doing better, I've got this happening, I'm, I'm meditating this many hours a day, you know. So, so it's useful to consider, what is the path for you? What is your practice? What constitutes real practice for you? Is it your meditation Is it mindfulness in the world? Is it relationship practice? Is it chanting? What is your practice? And how does it relate to how you see yourself on the path? What do you think of when you think of the path? And maybe you don't. Maybe you don't think in terms of path. In which case, this could all feel like gobbledygook, but is not. Because the path can be entered wherever you are. Because that is all that is of the path. Where you are, where you are, 
right now. And it is different for each of us in this room or anyone hearing my voice. It is different. I like to emphasize how similar we are, and we are in fact very similar. And we are all, each of us, quite different. We have been conditioned, some of us in similar ways, some of us in very different ways. And so the person that shows up in this body, in this place, is unique. Not separate, just unique. And our practice has to be within that context, this, this thing. Earthland's book considers race, sexuality, and gender orientation as the way that she has engaged the path. These things were important to her. She is a black woman. She is lesbian. She um, uh, is a woman. And how each of these things has informed who she is at any moment has been her route through the Dharma has been her route with the Dharma. That, that she explains in the book that the only way that she could be on the path was to accept who she was, to be who she was. Not so much a falling back as, as to just be who she is. So... And the reason is that the practice of experience has to take into account the physical embodiment of experience. This, us. So what do you say about yourself? Who are you? When you say, who am I? What are the things you say about yourself? Where do these ideas about self come from? Hmm? When you sit to meditate, do you sit on a cushion? Do you sit on a chair? Is there identity associated with, I'm someone who sits on a cushion? I'm someone who sits on a chair? For for 20 years, I sat cross-legged on the floor, Except on long retreats, I would alternate on chairs, but mostly, you know, and, and I sat cross-legged on the floor because I liked the energy that that triangular shape gave me. I liked that energy, and I still do, but now my physical therapist tells me I can't do that anymore. And you know how I fought sitting on a chair? Because... I identified with the person who sat cross-legged on the floor. And, you know, it turns out that meditation happens either way. (laughs) So I spent some time getting used to the fact that I was attached to something that was really not crucial to the whole process of meditating and and my spiritual life. It really wasn't crucial. It just, I just thought it was. This is a kind of trivial thing. We have an infinite number of these things that inform our practice, how we are in the world and what we do. 
how much allowance is there in your practice? And by that, I mean, uh, is a good sit only a sit where you're not agitated? Do you berate yourself for a lack of mindfulness in some situation? Oh, if I'd just been mindful, that wouldn't have happened. Or do you say, oh, that's what happened? This is what's happening. That's what I refer to as allowance. It's not so much, I'm uncomfortable with the word acceptance because that seems kind of passive to me. But the allowance, I have to to actually allow it to be true. (laughs) I have to recognize that this is what is. Okay, so the, how, how about how rigid is your practice? Do you keep doing something even if it feels like it's not working? <laughs> right? I'm going to do this. This is, this is how I do it. How, what's the role of effort in your practice? Are you over-efforting in some direction? My practice is meditation practice, and I do metta twice a week. Maybe, maybe metta needs to happen every day. <laughs> maybe, maybe that's not what's important at all. Maybe what you need is not to be on a formula. Maybe encouraging spontaneity in the practice might be important to give it a sparkle that allows you to delight in your practice again. Do you practice concentration primarily or mindfulness? Do you switch it around? Is the spirit of investigation still part of your practice? What we do in our practice, our practice practice, is discipline the mind. Leave it open to see clearly. So if we're just doing something by rote, we might miss what's happening we might miss the true experience of our lives. So it is useful both to have something that is familiar and reassuring. When I sit down to meditate, regardless of how concentrated I get, there is a moment of awe. That's the A-A-H-A, not the A-W-E-A, although that sometimes follows. It's a sense of settling in that is such relief for just a microsecond. And whatever else happens, happens. That's a function of having established a practice. Okay, this is an element of the practice. And then it's open to what's going to happen. Okay, so I'm not saying throw out all your habits. I'm only saying be aware of your habits and use them creatively so that we don't lose the habit of attention. The habit of attention. The way of seeing that allows us to get past, I already know this. I already know who I am. I already know what I do. I already know what my reactions are. Hmm. What do you notice? Are there themes to the things you notice? So I notice at certain times of my life that I'm, I'm putting a lot of focus on my emotional content, my emotional level, 
Or maybe it's on my attitude. Or maybe it's on what is, what is the theme of my thinking. Well, when I'm looking at that, it's like a doctor that might be a heart expert but has never done a lung scan on you and misses that you have COPD (laughs) because he's a cardiologist. Okay, so this happens to us also. We become habituated to only see things as we are culturally conditioned to see things. When you let go of something, are you releasing it or are you pushing it away? Oh, I don't want to be that way. I'm not going to be that way. Instead of noticing, oh, there's this, there's this tendency here. I have this bias. Oh, I'm afraid of dark spaces. Oh, well, I can let go of that. It doesn't change that I'm afraid of dark spaces. It means I'm ignoring it. (laughs) We pick these things up, we look at them, we feel them, we experience them, and we say, oh, I see this. It can begin very quietly, something you barely even notice like the touch of water on your skin, like knife in a drawer, like the next five minutes. The path is not a line on a map. It's a great shining world. Enter wherever you like. So a friend yesterday was telling me about a hike that she went on. She went on a 13-mile hike. Ah. And she had a wonderful time. They started out early in the morning yesterday, which was Labor Day. So lots of people ended up coming later in the day. And it was a walk along the coast. And as they they walked along, they would encounter clumps of people who entered at a different place. In different places, there were predominance of families. And so they walked down one side and back up to the other, back to where they started. And when they got to where they had started, there were a lot of people So because she walked the entire 13 miles, was her experience superior to the experience of the families that only did a half mile on one side of one particular parking lot? By what criteria might we say that? And so it is. Some people start early. Some people start late. Some people start through one point of view. Some start through another. Some cross the road from a parking lot. Some park on the same side as the trail. All of the ways that we encounter the Dharma have these same characteristics. We all enter at a different place. How can we say the path is the same? Some people stay a long time. Some people stay a short time. How can we measure the path? The path is immeasurable. (laughs) Because the path is our experience. There's no right way to travel a trail. You can stroll. You can hike. You can run. You can mountain bike. You can ride a horse. 
you can fall. (laughs) There is only the trail and the hiker. What is necessary is to discover one's own way through one's own experience and one's own conditioning. Here I am, and today, this is what I notice. This is where I am, right here. It's not whether I've done the right things and I've progressed to here. I'm here. This is the only thing that's important. I'm here. This is the practice I need to do. I have, in the course of... I've been a student of Gill's for over 20 years, and multiple times in the course of that, those 20 years, I've rediscovered the practice because I've rediscovered something I thought I knew. I've understood it in an entirely different way based on the fact that I was a changed person. For good or evil, where I enter the path today is not where I entered the path 20 years ago. Just isn't. Sometimes it's necessary to put an emphasis somewhere in an effort to soften the heart. When we become rigid in our practice, it usually is related to the fact that we're sort of protecting something. Okay, I'm gonna I'm gonna I don't wanna go there. I'm going to be careful about that. And we develop a kind of rigidity. And maybe doing loving-kindness practice will just soften the heart enough that we're able to see, to look at what it is that makes us uncomfortable. This practice is about working at the edge of being uncomfortable and discovering delight in the process. So I don't want to be a downer about this. (laughs) But it is being with that, okay? Maybe what we need to do, uh, certainly something I need to do, needed to do, and possibly still do, break down defensiveness around strategies adapted in, adopted in childhood to be safe. Where do you feel safe? When do you feel safe? One of the big memories in my life, one of the something that stands out for me was when I was on a, a uh, I was doing hospice volunteering, and there was a black woman who came into hospice. She had walked into the emergency room the night before with pain in her belly, and it turned out she had stage four ovarian cancer, and they just transferred her to hospice immediately. And she came in and she was hostile and screaming and she wouldn't let anywhere clo- anyone close to her. And I was watching this whole process taking place and I could see that the problem was she was really scared. And I considered that we didn't know anything about her. We didn't know where she had come from. We didn't know what conditions she had been living in. She didn't seem to have any family or any connection to anyone. And she was in there screaming, fighting, and they were about to give her Halidol or something because she was about to have written on her chart violent, which is not a good thing in a hospital. You know, then they start treating you a certain way. And 
And so uh, I went over to her and I sat down. It, well, she, had, she was putting her hand over her eyes. She was putting her hands over her eyes. And as I was sitting there, I said, you know you're safe here. And she opened her eyes and sort of peeked out from under her arm. And the, my experience of that moment was, I'm so sorry that my face is white. Here I was trying to talk to her about safety and I didn't know what it was like for her. But intuitively, I knew that you know, opening her eyes to a white person who's going to make decisions for her is probably not going to contribute to how safe she felt. And that moment sticks in my mind so strongly because I was so conscious of the fact that I was white and that her fear was around not being safe And the other faces, most of the nurses were uh, Filipino. So there weren't that many white faces, but it was white faces who put her there. (laughs) It was a very humbling experience for me to realize that I could also be a source of fear for her. No matter how much I wanted to make her feel differently, We can't make other people feel differently than they feel, any more than we can feel differently than we feel. This is just it. Now, as it happens, the outcome was a good one. Because she heard me say, I know you're afraid. I wasn't saying, what's wrong with you and you have to let me do this. I said, I know you're afraid, but you're safe. And we can just sit here. And I'll stay here with you as long as we need to. And then she didn't feel so alone. But there was this element of the color of our skins that sat in that room with us. And it was important for me not to be doing something for her because I knew what was happening and I knew what was better. It was important for me to meet her in the place of fear instead of what I could do for her. So, I identify as a woman married to a man. I have certain assumptions around that experience. Like it or not, no matter how much I try to be open to someone else's experience... I don't know what it's like to be married to a woman. How's that? I mean, I know what it's like to be a woman in a marriage, but I don't know what it's like to be married to a woman. Admitting that I don't know what that's like involves actually knowing and experiencing this is what it's like to be a woman in a marriage. We have to know. We have to experience it and know what we're experiencing. What expectations from my childhood influence what I think of in a marriage or a relationship? What am I carrying with me as a a memory that I'm unaware of that influences what I think should be true? You know, I think of something my father used to come in the door and he referred to my mom as babe. I loved that. No man has ever referred to me that way. Just, you know, probably not going to (laughs) happen. 
I loved it. And it was always the measure of something between them. It's a, it's a thing. We all carry these things. What hurts from previous relationships I have have I carried into this moment? What insults in work, at home, in family? And what do you carry? And what do you carry? And what do you carry? It's valuable to know what you carry whether you let go of it or not, is not as important as knowing that it's there. How does my body tell me this? What happens when you flinch? Do you know what that is? When when you flinch, something happens. What has been activated? It takes practice, practice, practice. It takes practice at noticing, at mindfulness. Oh. So, um, you know, I I have this thing with my husband that when we have a disagreement, I try very hard to remember that my intention is to be kind to my husband. So I'm going to tell you about this because it's, you know, humbling. uh, I went on a, a very strict diet, and the first two weeks were really, really difficult. But not too bad. And I thought, okay, I, I, yeah, I got this. Two weeks. I'm just following the program. And there was one Saturday night when part of it was a very low-calorie diet. So I had to eat at the right interval. You know, I couldn't go to six. I'd eat at five, right? It was, this is how long it was kind of set up for me. So it got to be time to eat. And my husband had this elaborate idea of what he was going to fix. And suddenly I started screaming at him. And I thought, oh, this is just crazy. And I, and I reminded myself my intention is to be calm and kind. And so I left the room because I wasn't able to do that. And I came back in and pretty soon I was screaming, I'm hungry. <laughs> I left the room again. I mean, really, this is happening. And I come back into the room and he hands me a carrot and he says, eat this. <laughs> I call this my eat a carrot moment. And I remind myself that sometimes I just have to admit I am out of control. And no amount of my Buddhist training is going to prevent the fact that I really was hypoglycemic and and couldn't handle it. And I ate the carrot and everything was fine. Truly, it was just sugar in my body. And I had to admit it was sugar in my body and not his insistence on making this elaborate meal that was the problem. Humbling. Eat a carrot. Okay. So, one of the most important things that Earthlin said, one of the things I found most enlivening in the book was by sitting with the teaching that this life Every aspect of it is the perfect life. I came to understand the depth of the waters of compassion. Without understanding these deep waters, we cannot see perfection as everything we experience as human beings. How foreign is that idea to you? This life is perfection. Your life is perfection. 
It is the perfect vehicle for freedom. Because this life is the way we realize freedom through what we're experiencing and seeing it clearly. Oh, this, this. Freedom from the suffering of our past, our expectations, our wounds. So gender, class, age, all of these are ways that we experience the world. This morning I was reading an article about some Stanford researchers who had been looking at x-ray data from the 70s and digitizing it, and they've discovered uh, information about the thickness of the glaciers in Antarctica that tell them certain things. So not to talk about that, but, but one of the statements by one of the researchers was, these scientists from the 70s were actually very careful. It's quite remarkable what they were able to record. And I thought, whoa, how condescending. I was a scientist in the 70s. <laughs> And all of a sudden, I'm feeling my age and the fact that it must be that whatever I discovered at that time was really not useful, right? (laughs) Because it was so unsophisticated compared to today's methods. We do this all the time. Unconscious assumptions and establishment of better and not so good. Better and not so good. The path is about how we navigate interrelationships with other people. How do we navigate it? How do we dress? Do we conform in our dress? Dress has been a big thing for me in my life. You know, I, I, re- I remember a, a, a copy machine sales uh, repairman who said, okay, you really confused me. He says, some days you come in in a tie-dyed t-shirt and jeans, and some days you come in one of these ridiculous suits. (laughs) I said, well, I'm just as confused as you are. (laughs) We communicate with how we dress, how we act, who we talk to, how we talk to people, what sort of work we do, our ethical standards. All of these are ways that we interact with other people. And all of these are part of our practice. The way you comb your hair in the morning, what you want to convey to other people, is part of your practice. What brings me delight? Is power involved? You know, I like to win arguments. Now, there are lots of reasons one might want to win an argument. But can you be happy whether you win or lose? Is happiness dependent on winning? I had a a boss who was my boss's boss when I was uh, quite young and uh, it, was a sci- it was a university setting and I was going to leave and the, uh, 
my boss's boss decided he could get me to stay by doubling my salary, which kind of gives you an idea of how underpaid I was. <laughs> and um, in the course of that conversation, he told me about how important it was to win. And he said that uh, he was developing a, an instrument, and he he wanted... Uh, he said, what we have to do is crush the competition. We have, to, we have to crush them. And I said, how can you believe that? You know, For him, it wasn't important to win, to be good. It was important that they fail also. And he told me it was because he had been a member of the French resistance in World War II and how important it was that, that your enemy did not survive. What a sad, sad way of being, where you are so afraid of those people who, who, with whom you're competing, that the only way to live your life is to destroy, as opposed to being as good as you can be. But he was carrying that memory with him that I can only attribute to, to fear. Not so much to cruelty, but to fear. Recently, uh, there, uh, a prominent political figure died, and I was reading his biography. He was someone that I uh, did not agree with. Politically, we were not compatible. And in reading his biography, I discovered he had all of these beliefs that, in fact, I ascribe to also, most notably, an anti-war stance. And I was so surprised, because it was easier for me to just put him in the enemy camp. That's my enemy. Be very careful about this. When it's easy, ask, why is it easy? What is it? What is it? Zenzu Earthland says the most pervasive and fundamental emotion from which all others surface within the lived experience of having been raced, sexualized, and gendered is the desire to belong. We pretty much all have a desire to belong, even if it's to the group of antisocial people. We all have a desire to belong. And that belonging to something, to some buddy to some path is very strong and it causes us to look in only one direction toward that thing that we want to belong to. And we, become, we form habits. So the good news is practice is about forming habits. So one of my habits that I've worked on very hard, more, more very diligently, to use a better word, is around right speech. And the the four elements of right speech, is it true, is it timely, is it useful, is it kind? It turns out you can do those same questions around almost any action. It doesn't have to be speech. Developing that mental process brings that to mind at useful times. When I'm not in control and I need to eat the carrot, that habit of the way of approaching 
any situation that may be tense serves me. It allows me to notice. That's why we do create prep practices, because they help us when we're at the crossroads of that uncomfortable feeling of, where am I? That feeling of not having anything to grab onto. So, the path is our journey from wherever we start as we encounter ourselves and others. It's a journey of interrelationships and intentions, of practice, of focus, and reflection. It is simple, but quite complex. So this, there's a statement that Earthland makes in the very end of her book that for me summons it up. And I'm a little concerned it might feel obscure, so I'm going to step through it with you and see, see what you think. So here's what she says. A moment is not now. A moment is simply in a state of being itself. We too can be in a state of being ourselves and not worry about now. We can be wholly ourselves as ourselves while engaging the breath. As a result of this breath, this meditation that arises, our motivations become purified of our wounds, our expectations, our stories, and our distorted perceptions of others. Now let me say it again. A moment is not now. A moment is simply in a state of being itself. We too can be in a state of being ourselves and not worry about now. We can be wholly ourselves as ourselves while engaging the breath. As a result of this breath, as a result of the meditation that arises from it, our motivations become purified of our wounds, our experiences, our stories, and our distorted perceptions of others. So now implies a a point in time and space. But it's only a state of being. And when we make it more than that, we're adding a a burden of meaning we're adding a burden of, uh, of a process, something more than itself. When we say, oh, it's now, and we immediately picture a timeline of before and after. But it's just now. It doesn't have a meaning in relationship to some other time. It's just now. Don't worry if this doesn't seem to make sense to you. Someday it may resonate, resonate with you. Someday it may never resonate with you. And it isn't necessary because you enter the path wherever you are. So I'm going to close by reading that poem one more time. Oops. Choose the right poem. You don't become the cloth just because you put on robes. 
You don't turn into empty space just because you carry a bowl. The sun doesn't bow down. Trees don't throw flowers at your feet. Birds don't start answering when you call. The path will hold even the biggest mistakes. The path will hold even your deepest regrets. But you don't become the cloth of the robe overnight. It can begin very quietly, something you barely even notice, like the touch of water on your skin, like a knife in a drawer, like the next five minutes, if they're not your last. The path isn't a line on a map. It's a great shining world. Enter wherever you like. You might get thrown back once or twice, but if you push through the outer layers, oh, my sisters, then you will know the true welcome that is the very essence of the path. Thank you very much. I hope this was useful. Are there any comments, questions? Yes. I'm sorry, who wrote the poem? Rohini. Rohini, R-O-H-I-N-I. It's from the Terragata. Oh, well, this is the time of the Buddha. So it's ascribed to a disciple of the Buddha. So it's one of the old, old renderings. Very few uh, uh, teachings of female disciples remain in the Buddhist tradition. This is a very limited uh, rendering. Okay, and this, so the, the book that I've been talking about by Jenju Earthland Manuel is called uh, The Way of Tenderness, Awakening Through Race, Sexuality, and Gender. Awakening, emphasis on awakening. <laughs> so, anything else? Um, I did read that book. It is so powerful. It's a small little book. It's not that thick. And um, at first I thought, oh yeah, I'm not a good reader. What I mean is I don't like to read that thick, big book. Mm -hmm. But each sentence, they're so so powerful. What really impacted me, there are a couple things. One is she was talking about she was not expressing her opinion, so feel like there's like a poison stuck in her throat. She's not speaking out, and uh, and it's, I realize that my life's getting, you know, towards the end, and I'm that kind of person. Don't talk in the, you know, in this kind of setting. Then I said, yeah, I have an opinion. You know, it's kind of stuck here. I need to... So, so encouraged uh, to me, encouraging to me. The second one is she was quoting somebody else in that book, say, I'm just wondering um, something about, I don't know the exact quote, like, it's afraid that they don't love enough, enough in this life. Um, some kind, some French writer. So I think Earthlings 
uh, idea is that in this life, you know, we, like you said, to be the true essence, to be ourself, and to love enough. It's just to love. And I really appreciate those two things you brought in. One is the nun's poem, and that those are, I think there's a one from uh, Mahapachapati also, you know, that... Yes, there are a number several, of poems in yeah. here that were selected. Yeah, yeah it's, it's um, very, very touching to me when you're reading it. It's just very touching. Mm-hmm. It's a hint of sadness, but a hint, it's so much inspiring. It's just very inspiring to me. Thank you. Yeah, th- thank you. And thank you for sharing your voice. <laughs> uh, is there anyone else? Yes. That's fine. <laughs> um, just, uh, I learned at a retreat recently that um, one of the things for that blockage, uh, that chanting that a lot of nuns find have found that that going through the chanting has opened up that blockage. That's another benefit for them. They were sharing that, and I thought that was so interesting. And so I've been, because I have it too, that feeling that it's just, I have an opinion. I don't, I clamp it down, or I just don't let it out. So anyway, we tried to, I try, I've been trying to chant. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. That's, that's true. You know, some, uh, it, at some point in my my ancient ha- past. I used to go to Grateful Dead concerts so I could scream at the concert. <laughs> I was really good at it. <laughs> and I would feel so great afterward because it is very often the experience of many women in our society that they cannot speak out. And I say that even as someone that... Uh, spent a lot of time in environments where it was necessary for me to speak out and was moderately successful at doing so. And, and still, that feeling of clamping down and what I have to say can't be heard in this space, won't be heard in this space, won't be appreciated. Maybe I don't appreciate it. And there's that feeling of tightening in the throat and the, the lump in the chest yeah, many, many women know this feeling. Many other people besides women know this feeling. It's, um, uh, but it's very common. And, and that ability to loosen those vocal cords at any time frees you up. Maybe I can say this. Maybe I can say this. Yeah. Thank you. All right. Go eat a carrot. <laughs> did I do it? I didn't turn this.